Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, okay? Luke chapter 12, we are finishing our three-part sermon series. He is our king. And uh, this morning, the title of the sermon is uh, very original. The title of this morning's sermon is The Return of the King. And we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 12. Yes. Luke chapter 12. Let's go ahead and read this passage together, okay? Luke chapter uh, 12, verse 32, starting at verse 32. It says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their king to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose king finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose king finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Verse 41, Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the king puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance? It will be good for their servant whom the king finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put them in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my king is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. Verse 46, the king of that servant will come on that day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces. Yeah, that's in your Bibles. And assign him a place with the unbelievers. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he tells a country, the country of Narnia, which is under the curse of the White Witch. You guys know the story? The queen places a spell on the land so that it's what? Always winter and never Christmas. Under control, the future of Narnia looks bleak until the word gets out that Aslan is on the move. That's the sermon, by the way, (laughs) right there. Aslan is on the move. In this story, Aslan is, of course, who? The noble lion who represents Christ. And this king is coming to set things straight. He's coming to destroy the white witch and reverse the curse of Narnia. And, of course, the first sign of Aslan's movement Towards this cursed land is that the snow begins to melt. Spring is in the air. The coal begins to fade away. And the sun rays peer through the dark clouds, promising the dawn of a new day. And everything begins to change. You know what the message of Christmas is? It's that Aslan is on the move. Everything is going to be different when he returns. The reason why fairy tales 
resonate with us is because all of us at some level deep down inside wonders, is this world all there is? There's something deep within us that wonders, is this world all there is? We hope and hope that death is not the end, that good will triumph for evil, that Prince Charming will sweep us away. By the way, just on a side note, uh, so my daughter is getting into these, of course, fairy tales, right? And uh, she's at that age where I ask her, I go, Sophie, who do you want to marry? She goes, Daddy. I'm like, you got that right. <laughs> yes, yes, you want to marry Daddy. I'll probably do that for maybe two, three more years, you know, but uh, until then, until then, until then, is thought I'd share that. It has nothing to do with the sermon, but I thought I'd share that. I thought I'd share that. I also want to share that I really feel bad for the guy that she's going to bring home someday. Yep. So what do we do? We keep spinning these stories over and over, repeating these stories that hold the promise of another world. But here's the thing about fairy tales and why they're so powerful, because we believe, we don't simply, these fairy tales don't simply demand that another world exists. There's a part of us that must believe that this enchanted world is not that far away. There's something within us that wants to believe that you step into a wardrobe and there is Narnia. There's something deep in us that wants to believe that you wander through the forest and you happen upon a cottage with seven dwarves. There's something deep within us that wants to believe that this world that turns out to be far closer than you thought and stories that endure are these stories that capture our imagination and that says there is another world that you dream about and it's not that far away. Here's the good news. There's, there's huge differences between fairy tales and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the major difference is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true. His announcement of the gospel is simply the announcement of the existence and availability of this other world. Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The nearness of the kingdom, the nearness of another world has good news according to Jesus. That's the gospel. What's he saying? Well, since there can be no kingdom without a king... Jesus is saying, the good news is that the true king is on his way. I am he. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. The good news is that this fallen, broken world, as we know it, is not the whole story. The king is returning someday. And the world as we know it is not the end of the story. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? We talk about hope. During Christmas, our hope lies in the fact. Anybody struggling with loneliness? I love the fact that we're so honest. The hope of Christmas, it's not that you go to heaven someday. The hope of Christmas is this longing that we have for connection, for relationship. One day will be fulfilled beyond our imagination. Anybody struggling with someone who is sick in your life or someone who's recently passed away? The hope of Christmas is that another world is coming someday when there will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. 
The hope of Christmas is that for those of us who struggle looking at our world going, all this evil, all this injustice, all this suffering, what's going to happen to it? The good news is when the king returns, he is going to put an end to all suffering, injustice, and evil. Is that good news to anybody? It should be. I already see eyes welling up with tears because this is what we long for, you guys. And the hope of Christmas is not that when you die, you float into heaven somewhere with eternity with angels. The hope of heaven is that when this king returns, and oh, yes, he is, he is going to remake the whole world. The king is returning. The king is returning. He is our king is what we've been talking about in the last three weeks. We began this journey looking at Matthew 2, and the question that Matthew asked in Matthew 2 was, who is king? Is Herod king? The people in Matthew are living, during Matthew's time, are living under the oppressive, unjust rule of King Herod, and everybody's longing for a different rule, different reign. Everybody's wondering, is King Herod always going to rule? And the news of the Magi is, no, 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 his days are limited. There's another king that is returning And last week we talked about, is he our king? Is Jesus your king? When you believe in Jesus, he doesn't just give you inner peace, but completely rearranges your entire life. It's the power of God to re-administer, rearrange our life in all kinds of ways. And so the question we wrestled with last week is, who is your king? Who is your ultimate authority? Who is your ultimate priority? Are there conditions to your obedience? Are there if to your obedience? Do you live from the perspective of God? I'll obey you if. Because whatever on the other side of the if, we said last week, is your real savior king. Whatever that is, is your ultimate authority and ultimate priority. And people get all worked up about what it means to have Christ as king, Christ as authority. Because they say, I don't want to give up my independence. And we said last week, you gave up your independence already. The question is not, is, the question is not do you have a king? The que- you have a king. The question is, is that King Jesus? Every single one of us in this room, I don't even know you personally, is living for something or someone. And whatever that something is or someone is, that is your Savior King. Don't sit there and go, you know what, if I give Christ my Lordship, your Lordship is already being given to something or someone. And whatever that God is, whatever that Savior King is, if it's not Christ, will oppress you endlessly. It will demand that you give your life, your life energy, and, and all of your effort for it. And even when you do get it, you'll realize you're emptier and less happy than you were before. Jesus Christ comes and says, I'm the only Savior King who can fulfill you. And when you fail me, I will forgive you. Who's your Savior King? None of us here is truly independent and free. You're enslaved to something or someone. Is it King Jesus or is it someone else? So the three questions we asked last week was what? There are three evaluative questions as we look at the various lives in our lives is, I think the next slide, please. Am I willing to obey whatever God says about this life area, no matter how I feel about it? That tells you whether he is your king. Second question, am I willing to thank God for whatever happens in this life area, whether I understand it or not? Is he your savior king? And the third, is there something in this area I'm relying on more than God for my hope and meaning in life? Who is your savior king? Today, the sermon title is The Return of the King. And and essentially the text that we looked at you guys today the text that we looked at today, 
answers the question, how does someone who is aware that the king is returning live? What are the practices of the people who receive the power of the kingdom? And there's four, and then we're done. First is radical generosity to the poor. Radical generosity to the poor is the practice of people who is living in awareness of the return of the king. Look at your Bibles. Look at your Bibles. Verse 32, Jesus says, you receive the kingdom. And then immediately, Jesus turns right around and says what? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Quick question real quick before we go on. Why do we give? Why do we tithe? Why do we give offering? So that God would accept us? So that we would enter the kingdom? so that God would have favor upon us. Let me just say this really clearly. If there's any of you sitting out there today and the reason why you give to the church or you give to charity and ministry is somehow so that God will bless you, favor you, give you things that you're asking for, God literally says, no thanks. Keep it. The reason why we give is not out of religious reasons to go, if I do this, then God will bless me. The reason why we give is because we're saying, God has already blessed me and everything that I have is his. So I give with radical generosity. Jesus makes that clear. But what he says is just absolutely astounding, you guys, because Jesus is completely revolutionizing the Old Testament standard of charity, which was the tithe. People usually give 10% of what they own, and that's what we do. We go, I give my 10%, I'm happy. Jesus radically alters that. He goes, if you belong to the kingdom, the standard for giving for those of you that belong to the kingdom is not just the tithe. He revolutionizes that. He says kingdom people don't give from income. They give from assets. Sit on that for a moment. Jesus literally says the things that you own, things that you enjoy, even love, sell them and give to the poor. Hello, kingdom people, be willing to even lower your lifestyle so that you would have more to give. Radical generosity. Blow past what you're accustomed to. Don't put limits. Be that radically generous. Answer, question. Kingdom people, why don't we give? Opposite of generosity is not stinginess opposite of generosity is fear the reason why we don't give is because we're afraid what about my clothes what about my food what about my needs so then what do we do with the whole but seek ye first the kingdom and all these things will be met what do we do with that what do we do with the fact that jesus says give radically give generously and then he says if you seek my kingdom and my priorities all of these things will be met the problem with why we struggle with this is because we read the bible individually do you know that about 70 80 percent of the bible was written to groups of people so almost all of the commands in the new testament are plural like if you grew up in the south it'll more resonate with you because most of the commands are y'all y'all not just you most of the commands in the Bible are y'all, like this one. Y'all seek first the kingdom of God. What is he saying? Unlike many of us who read this and go seek first the kingdom of God, and we go, if I do God's work, I'm generous, I get a check in the mail. Or I'll win the lottery. God will meet those means miraculously. But pay attention to what Jesus says. He says, don't be afraid. What little flock? flock he's talking to a group of people he's talking to a kingdom community and he says the reason why you don't have to be afraid as kingdom people as you wait the return of the king to give radically generously is because what in one sense in one in one situation jesus said this in mark chapter 10 verse 29 i tell you the truth no one who has left homes or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecution, and in the age to come eternal life. This present age. 
Now, we know what some of those words mean. We know what it means that when we sometimes become a Christian, we lose our fathers, our mothers, our brothers and sisters. But when you come into the family of God like we did today, beautiful picture, we get another family, right? We, that's one of the great things about the kingdom is that you get another family, the family of God. We resonate with that, but then what do we do with the fields and the homes? Here's what Jesus is saying, you guys. This is so critical. Jesus is saying, when you come into the kingdom community, you not only get fathers and mothers and so on and so forth, but you also get homes and possessions. And you go, how is that? Jesus says, life in the kingdom as we await the king's return. This life of radical generosity, this is possible because when needs are ever in the kingdom community, pay very close attention. When needs are evident in the kingdom community, it is assumed that that same kingdom community will take care of your needs. This is what it means to be a part of a kingdom community, is that you have people who are even radically lowering their lifestyle and radically being generous. Why? You're not afraid. Why aren't you afraid? Because you know that when you belong to this kingdom community, We so take care of each other. When we see each other in need, we meet those needs. And we take care of each other. Is that happening here? Is that happening here? I'll tell you the only way it will happen is that you have to be part of a kingdom community where the gospel has so humbled you that you are willing to let other people know your needs. Oh, that's hard. You have to have the gospel so humble you in this kingdom community that you're not proud, that you're not arrogant, that you don't somehow attach self-esteem or lack of self-esteem because you are in need. But the gospel has so humbled you and you recognize none of y'all are different from I am. We're all the same. We all kneel at the foot of the cross and say there's more room. So when I am in need, I'm not going to let my pride get in the way of saying, hey, kingdom community, I need help. By the way, this is happening in this church. It's amazing. And the fact that I don't know about it is even more amazing. Just this week, I hear that a group of people have been paying rent for somebody for six months. Amazing. And I don't even know about it. And I love that. I love that. This two weeks ago, heard that somebody, somebody actually paid the tuition. A group of people paid tuition for somebody who couldn't pay tuition. I'm going... Carlton is my sound effect (laughs) but here's the other thing too watch watch this not only has the gospel humbled you but the gospel has so transformed you that you are no longer finding your identity security validation in your wealth and your possessions so you're freed to give both need to be happening is that happening here look unless you're living under a rock have you noticed lately Our country today, our country, we're living in a country where people are struggling financially and economically. Here's the powerful thing. When you read church history and historically, did you know that when social conditions were most dire, the gospel of Jesus Christ shone that more powerfully? Do you know why? Because when social conditions were the worst, 
When Christians stepped up to the plate and said, 4th century AD, Roman Emperor Julian wants to wipe out Christianity from the face of the face of his empire, wants to wipe it out. He wants to revive paganism. So he's building beautiful temples and creating beautiful worship services. And yet Christianity won over the Roman Empire, not because Christians had more beautiful buildings, not because Christians had better services, but Christians were radically generous to the people in need. When social conditions are the most dire, the gospel of Jesus Christ spoke to them much more powerfully because it spoke of a group of people who said, I don't find my identity and value in my wealth. And secondly, we are about radical generosity. We are in an age today where we can have the gospel of Jesus Christ be demonstrated powerfully. Is it happening here? Because we're living this life of radical generosity. Why aren't we turning our culture upside down with the gospel today? Just asking. Just asking. Secondly, radical service across social barriers. Radical service across social barriers is the second practice of kingdom people. Jesus in this story is describing a servant who's not living in awareness of the coming king. What's his job? His job was to care for, feed, serve, and meet the needs of the other servants in this state. But what does he do? Do you notice? He beats them, he abuses them, and he oppresses them. But the amazing aha moment in this parable is this. The opposite of the servant is who? Is the master. It's the king. And when he's telling this story, it would have made absolutely no sense. See, the NIV kind of uh, just makes the, 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 the sense a little weak. It says the master, the king, will dress himself. The literal translation is gird himself. Picture this. People in those days wore long flowing robes. Okay, They didn't wear pants, long flowing robes and a belt. And so what they would do is when they needed to do physical strenuous exercise, like lifting stuff, you know, what they would do is they would gird themselves, literal translation, gird themselves. So they would take the robe, they would pick it up, tuck it under the belt, and they would pick stuff up, okay? Now here's the thing. Masters, kings never girded their robes. Why? They never did physical, strenuous, manual labor. That was a job for who? Servants and slaves. And yet in this story, what is the king? What is the master doing? He is girding himself, taking the role of a slave, a servant. And what is he doing? He is serving servants who are, it says, reclining at the head of the table, which was the place of honor. And what Jesus is saying here is something that was absolutely countercultural. What's he saying? He's looking at his people and he's saying this. He's saying, look, you live in a culture where people notice your pedigree. You live in a culture where you go, uh, where'd you go to school? Where do you live? How much money you make? You live in a culture where you, judge, where you judge a book by its cover. You look at the way they dress. What kind of car drive? You live in a culture, Jesus says, of stratification and hierarchy. Where not only do you judge them as being below you or above you, but you size them up to see uh, what can I get out of this? So you enter into relationships with people who will open doors for you, who will get jobs for you, who will get you into social circles that will make you cool. You, get in, you, you size people up according to their pedigree, stratification, and hierarchy. And Jesus says, kingdom people, when you come into the kingdom, you don't notice their pedigree. You don't do this hierarchy, stratification thing. You, peer, you look at them, and all, what do you do? You, you serve them. You serve them. The first thing you don't notice is what schools you go to, how much money do you make, where do you live, what car do you drive. The first thing you notice is what's your job. The first thing that kingdom people notice is are you in need, 
because that's enough for me, and you serve them, regardless of their pedigree, regardless. I know who I'm talking to. There are many of you young professionals out there. Here's my question for you. As you look at your social circles, are there people that you're serving who can do absolutely nothing for you? Are there people in your life that you're serving who can do absolutely nothing for you? Think about that. Think about that for a moment. Jesus says people who have the power of the kingdom don't judge or look down on people based on looks, education, money, and social status. No, you genuinely serve them. That's why throughout the Gospels, what do we see Jesus doing? He's reaching out to lepers, tax collectors, Gentiles, fallen women, and the poor. All the people that were excluded from centers of power in that culture that day of respectability and influence. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus brings those kinds of people that everybody's excluding into the center of his new community called the church. And what does he do? He is especially warm towards them. Warm towards the people that the world considers losers, the unimportant, and the outcasts. Why? 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 Here's the gospel. Listen very carefully. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that salvation was achieved not by taking power, but through weakness and service. The incarnation and the cross. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that this king wins our salvation through losing. He achieves power through weakness and service and comes to wealth via giving it all away. This king says the climax of my kingship is not when I get elected, but when I get executed. What kind of a king is this? Now listen to this, though. If the salvation of Jesus is achieved that way, then the salvation of Jesus is received not by those who are accomplished and spiritually strong, but by those who admit that they're weak and spiritually bankrupt. In a world that prizes winners, the only requirement for kingdom entrance is that you admit that you're a loser. I know that's shocking to your system right now to go, I'm a loser? Yes, you're a loser. Now, don't walk out of here and go, that's why I don't go to church, see? They make you feel like crap. The pastor said, I'm a loser. I don't listen to very carefully what I'm saying. Kingdom entrance is for those who admit that you're a loser. What do I mean? It's for those who realize that they're unable to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. It's for those who figured out that they're not gods. It's for those who understand bankruptcy of life without God. It's for those who recognize that while they're deficient, God is more than sufficient. It's for those who recognize that. That's how you get into the kingdom. And when you get into the kingdom that way, that radically changes and alters your perspective of those that our world deems losers. Gone is a sense of superiority. Gone is a sense of arrogance. Gone is a game that you and I play every day of measuring ourselves and comparing ourselves to other people to make ourselves feel better. Kingdom people look around and go, who is in need? Don't matter the pedigree, don't matter who's in need, and I merely serve them. The gospel explains success in terms of giving, not taking. The gospel explains success in terms of self-sacrifice, not self-protection. It's about going to the back, not getting to the front. 
The gospel shows that we win by losing, we triumph through defeat, we achieve power through service, and we become rich by giving ourselves away. We spend our lives serving instead of being served and seeking last place, not first. Gospel-centered people are those who love giving up their value for others, giving up their place for others, rather than guarding their place from others because their value and worth is already found in Christ, not in their position in life. Kingdom people, church, are not impressed with glitz and physical beauty and status and power because you're no longer finding your value and worth in them. You have your value and worth in the things that the world cries out for as a son or daughter of God, and you're freed to serve. Can I ask you a question? Has the gospel so gripped your heart today that as you wait for the return of the king, that you have relationships that you've entered into in your life with people who can do absolutely nothing for you and you're merely serving them. Mark of the kingdom. Mark of the kingdom. Third. Third mark of the kingdom is radical awareness of future joy and justice. Radical awareness of future joy and justice. And I love these two. I love these two, you guys. We've been saying throughout this season that we want to celebrate hope, joy, and peace. But the Christmas story reminds us that true joy and peace don't come from skirting how things really are, from ignoring how things really are, the difficulties of life, but in charging right through them, believing that there's something on the other side, right? That's how we experience joy. What does this text say? Verse 35, look at your Bible, verse 35, it says, keep your lamps burning. Keep your, what does that mean? Jesus is saying, stay awake, be spiritually aware of what? And Jesus tells us in the rest of this passage, the first thing is future joy. He says those in the kingdom live in radical awareness of future joy that awaits them, that directly impacts them. Now, where do we see joy? The entire parable is about a feast. It's about a feast, which is the most joyous occasion in their culture. And Jesus is saying this is what awaits those who belong to the kingdom. Feast. One of the things I love about church history as I look at the life of like, a book like Rise of Christianity by a guy named Rodney Starks, when you read books about the early church, one of the things that you realize is that the reason why they were able to impact their culture is because of their joy in the midst of suffering. It's, a, it's amazing. You look, at the, you look at the accounts, right? You look at the accounts of early Christians and, 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 the, and the joy in the face of suffering is what characterized them. So like when plagues and epidemics would hit major cities and all the family and loved ones would abandon their own mothers and fathers and sons and daughters because they didn't want to die and they would just bolt. Christians in these cities came out, took these plague-ridden, sick-infested people into their homes fully knowing that it may cost them their lives, cost them their resources, cost them their families. Costing all of these things, these Christians took these men and women and children who were dying and joyfully served, and joyfully loved, and joyfully took care of them, and the world noticed. Now, I've said to you guys before, why is it so hard for you and I to face suffering? Why is it so hard to do the right thing when you know that it's going to cost us money, cost us our lives, cost us our reputation, cost us other things? Do you know why it's so hard? Even though we say we believe the Bible, because deep down inside, we think and believe that this life is the only life we'll ever have. We think that this money right here is the only money we'll ever have. We think that this family right here is the only family we'll ever have. 
And so it makes it incredibly hard to go, God, if it means doing the right thing and it means sacrificing these things and I don't want to do it, then I don't want to give it up because if that's what it means, then what? We don't believe in the return of the king because when the king returns, the Bible says that this world is not the only world you're ever going to have. I'm on Lord of the Rings kind of thing here this morning. My favorite, my favorite passage, my favorite passage that speaks of this is at the very end when Sam is talking to Gandalf. At the very end, and Sam says this, Sam, Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Everything sad, all the evil, all the suffering, all the, is everything sad going to come untrue? Here's the thing. Take that very question and go to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Do you know why that's so powerful for me? The reason why that's so powerful for me is this. the bible doesn't just say you've suffered and there's been there's been so much evil and suffering in the world it's also broken but in the future in the future i'm going to sort of come and give you something that's going to console you something that's just sort of going to offset the evil something that's going to medicate you so that you don't have to think about it much what the bible promises is that when the king returns what awaits us is not consolation what awaits us is restoration What awaits us is all the evil, all the suffering, all the injustice in the world is going to come untrue, undone. Undone. What that means is that every bad thing that you've experienced is going to be transmuted, transformed into greater joy because you've experienced it. Every problem, every evil, every pain is going to be undone, not just covered over. Everything sad is going to come untrue. The glorious reality that the Bible says over and over again, the glorious reality is when the king returns, when the king returns someday, things are somehow going to be better for once not having been right. The glorious reality is going to be better for the fact that there was a need for sacrifice. There was a need for suffering. There was a need for a cross. Everything sad is going to come untrue. At the return of the king, there will be restoration, not just consolation. The Bible ends with this promise. Did you know that? Revelation 21, look what it says. And the return of the king, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No more mourning, no more crying, or no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, say this with me, you guys, ready? I am making everything new. Is that good news? If you knew that that's the world that awaits you, and that this world is not the only world we're ever going to have, do you know how much more bold you would be? Do you know how much more sacrificial you would be? Do you know how much more joyful you would be. Do you know that this is what enabled Jesus to endure the cross? This is amazing. It's this awareness of future joy. Hebrews chapter 12, this is what the author says, verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? Say it with me. Joy set before. What enabled Jesus to endure this suffering? What enabled Jesus to endure the suffering on the cross? The Bible says it was his awareness of future joy. His future joy that awaited him. Endure the cross 
scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus, the Son of God, endure suffering for the joy that's set before him? Anybody sitting here today going, Peter, I'm at the end of the year. I'm worn out. I'm so tired. It is incredibly difficult, Peter, to experience, to feel joy in my life, to work up this thing. I want to remind you today from God's word, this life, this world is not the only world we'll ever have. Not only future joy, but also future justice. They lived in radical awareness of future justice. Verse 46, I intentionally ended on that because I wanted you guys to squirm. When the king returns, the Bible says there will be justice. Here's a man who is violating, beating, exploiting, oppressing. He's, 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 he's doing this to the other servants. And what happens to him? The Bible says he will be cut to pieces. Now the problem is we read that and you and I cringe. You go, oh my gosh, the harshness of it. That's scary. But here's the thing. Another reason why the early Christians, early Christians were able to endure persecution and they experienced persecution like you and I, persecution is somebody in our coworker going, mm, I'm going to treat you poorly. Persecution for early Christians was, let's throw you to the lions as thousands of people cheer as they're entertained. That's what they experienced. Christians were being thrown out of their homes merely because they were Christians. They were losing their jobs. They were being physically beat. All of these things were happening. And the amazing thing is, you don't read anything about Christians retaliating. You don't read any stories of Christians going, they did that to our city. Let's gather the Christians, go to their city, and burn it down. You don't see any record of that. You know what you see? You see Christians who are burning at the stake, being thrown to the lions. What are they saying? They're saying, Father, forgive them. To which you go, how? How is that possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. They live in radical awareness a future justice. They live with an awareness that said, I serve a God whose scales and balances are perfect and he will not let anyone get away with anything. I like to read this quote once a year. Part of it is because it's refreshing to me. Part of it is a little bit intellectually dense so some people miss it, but I love reading it. It's from Miroslav Volf in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. Listen to what he says. My thesis that God is a God of justice, judgment, and vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially in America. Why? He says, but imagine that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone, which he was. And among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters and mothers have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. What will keep them from picking up the sword and taking vengeance? What will keep them from endless cycle of payback? It is to insist that God is a God of justice who will not let anyone get away with anything. It takes, oh, I love this part. It takes the quiet of a suburbs for the birth of the thesis that a belief in a God of justice and vengeance will lead people to be violent and that God is a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of innocent people, the idea will inevitably die. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Do you know why this is so powerful? Because when you've been hurt, when you've been violated, when your village has been plundered, and your family members have been murdered and raped, what will keep you from violence? What will keep you from picking up this sword and going, I'm going to pay you back. You killed five of my family members, I'm going to kill ten of yours. What will keep you from doing that is a deep belief that God is a God of perfect justice. 
And he says, do you know why Americans don't like this idea of God who picks up the sword, justice and vengeance? He says, because Americans have lived a very comfortable life. Have you thought about that? Do you think of God as being a God of justice? Do you when you sit there and go, return of the king, not just, oh, warm fuzzies. Return of the king. He's going to love. We're going to warm fuzzies. When you think about the return of the king, do you rejoice in the fact that he is a God, a king, who is going to return with perfect justice and once and for all put all evil, all injustice down? Is that good news? If you didn't believe that, there's no way that your heart will not grow bitter, your heart will not grow weary, and your heart will not go disillusioned at all the evil and suffering in the world. Furthermore, if you've been hurt and you've been wronged, if you know people who've been hurt, who've been wronged, how do you with hope continue to serve them? How do you with hope continue to do the right thing? Is to believe that there is a God who one day will return and administer perfect justice. Is that good news? Oh, man. I know. We're still very American. That idea, I like personal savior better, Peter. I like warm, fuzzy. But this king says he will one day return. This is the reason why when you talk to people who have experienced atrocities all over the world, find out what gives them hope. You realize that unless you believe in a God of justice and vengeance, we're not able to forgive. We will not be able to forgive and live nonviolently ourselves. This is the reason why early Christians were able to pray for their persecutors. When they were being burned at the stake, they didn't say, My God will get you! Pa! They said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know what they were saying? My heavenly Father knows what you deserve, and I'm going to pray for you. How radically different would our world be if Christians lived with this hope? Do you know what you would do, first and foremost? You would work your tail off to rid this world of evil and injustice, knowing that God will one day come and finish the job. Secondly, your heart would break for the evil and injustice in this world. Your heart would break, but your heart would also look with hopeful expectation that God will one day return. And thirdly, for those of you who have personally been wronged, personally, and you have a hard time forgiving somebody, and you go, I can't forgive because I forgive them. I feel like I'm just kind of letting them off, letting them off the hook. I just, you know that you don't have to be the executioner. You can be free to let go and forgive. Why? God knows what they deserve, and God will administer perfect justice. Fourth, practice radical awareness of the coming feast. Radical awareness of the coming feast. What do I mean by that? The f- the f- There's a feast. There's a feast waiting for you and for me in the kingdom. Is that good news to anybody? Now, I know, I know. We Americans, you know, feast. I don't know. What do you think of when you think of a feast? What do you think of? Talk to me. What do you think of when you think of a feast? Thanksgiving? Yeah? Okay, what else? What else? Feast, feast. Weddings? Okay, weddings? Okay. Do you know what the Bible means when you feast? Do you know why in Revelation, over and over again, you find pictures like this? Can you go ahead and put up, put up the thing? Okay. As some of you guys say wedding. Look at this message, right? Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us rejoice and be glad and give them glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright linen was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. These are the words, true words of God. Do you know what God is saying here? Do you know what God is saying here? 
God is saying that when the king returns one day, you and I are going to sit at the head of the table. And here's what God said. The king, the king, the king, the master will gird himself. Strenuous activity. Hard to do what? To do what? To pour out as much honor, as much glory, as much joy on you and me. That's what he says he's going to do. The kingdom comes in the fullness. Jesus says, I'm going to gather up all my powers, all my authority, all the immensity of my being, and I'm going to come to bear it on one thing, to pour as much honor, as much joy, as much love and glory on you as I can. I'm going to, Jesus says, summon all my powers, all of my powers to meet the deepest needs of your souls when I come. When the lover of our souls, the ultimate creator of our joy sensors, comes and returns, he is going to meet the deepest longing of our hearts. Let me put it this way. Think about the best food that you could imagine, not experienced. Imagine. Jesus says, that's what's waiting you. Think about the best sex. You could imagine. Marry people. <laughs> I'm, I'm honest. I'm, 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 think about, think about, I'm serious. God created sex. He says, do it in the bounds of what he's created. It's amazing. But many of us, many of us, we go, wow, that'd be better. That'd be more. God says, think about that, not only that you've experienced, that you could imagine. And the ultimate creative, your joy sensors, he's going to come. Think about the best friendship relationship you could imagine. Not just experience, imagine. Kind of friendship relationship you go, it doesn't get any better. God says that you could imagine. That's what's awaiting for you when the king returns. Is that good news? Oh, Lord. I said earlier, anybody lonely? You're sitting there going, if I can just, the creator of your joy sensor comes and says, when I return, not only will, not, will you not know loneliness, when I return, your desire for relational longing, not just what you've experienced, but what you could imagine, that's what's waiting us. Is that good news? When the king returns, when the king returns, he is going to gird himself up. He is going to summon all of his powers and authority. See, he's not some control king authority. He is a king who has become a servant who says, I'm going to gird this up. And what am I going to do? I'm going to pour it all to pour out as much joy, honor, love on you, my servants, as possible. Why would you not want to love a king like that? Why would you not want to worship a king like that? Why would you not want to burst out of your seat today and go, ah, come soon, come soon, Lord, come soon. We await your longing. How do you enter the kingdom? You got to end with the gospel. How do you get to be this true for you? How do you get this to be true for you? Notice, please, God doesn't say, if you do this and do this, that God will give you the kingdom. God says, I've given you the kingdom for the what? Sheer pleasure of it, simply because it gives me joy. The gospel is not, I give you the kingdom, now live this way. The gospel says, I've given you the kingdom. You are already entered it. It's free by grace. Now live in awareness of that. Be radically generous. Serve people across social cultures. Wait with anticipation at the joy and justice that comes. Of course, we end with the question. Carlton, you come on up. 
How is that possible? How is it that we could enter the kingdom? How is it that we could enter the kingdom freely? How is it that you and I have this incredible privilege by the king who's returning and says, it's not by merit, it's not by effort, it's not because you're a good person, but he says, I've given you the kingdom for the sheer joy of it, sheer pleasure of it. We got to deal with verse 46. How is it that you're going to enter the kingdom? It's this whole cutting business. Violent imagery. In Genesis 15, God appears to Abraham and God says this. God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your people. Your descendants will be as mult, will, 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 will number the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. God says, I'm going to come and through you and your family bless the entire world. And Abraham says, God, how do I know you're going to do this? And here's what we find in Genesis 15. Abraham said, Lord, how do I know that I will gain possession of it? The Lord said to him, bring me a height for a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds he did not cut in half. So here's what's happening. This is how oaths were made in that time between a master and a servant. When a servant was making an oath to a master and said, I will do such and such things, and the master said, when you do such, I will do such and such things. When oaths were made, the servant would bring these animals, he would cut them in half, and he would arrange them on the side, and the blood would drip to the center. And what the servant would do, his servant would walk in the path of the blood. And here's what that symbolized. What that symbolized is, may I be done like these animals were I to break the oath. May happen to me. What happened to these animals? Cutting pieces and bleeding. May that happen to me if I were ever to break the oath. And then here's what we find a few verses later in Genesis 15. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And all scholars agree that that's God. That's God. Fire pot, blazing torch appeared and passed between them. And on that day, Bible says, verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So here's what's happening. In these animals that are cut in the path of the blood, God himself appears and God walks in the blood path. What was God saying? two things God was saying I will become the servant God was saying here's how you know that a day will come when I will return and you will recline at the tables and I the master the king will gird myself and serve you God says because a day will come when I will do that What is he doing? He's foreshadowing the cross. In Genesis 15, God is foreshadowing the cross. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the very role of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. More than just being a servant, what was God declaring? What was God declaring? Genesis 15, God was declaring and saying, a day will come when I myself will bear the punishment and the burden of the fact that you are going to break the oath that will be made between us. A day will come when I myself will take on the punishment. I myself, the king of the universe, will take on the punishment of the fact that you will break the oath. 
And in Genesis 15, Genesis 15, God was saying, just as these animals were slain and the blood was shed, a day will come when I will take your place and be slain. When I will shed my blood so that you can enter the kingdom. How do we know and have certainty that in the world that we live in today, we could live with anticipation and hope that someday the king will return and do as he promised? Because on the cross, God fulfilled his promise and the oath. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And he himself bore on the cross the punishment for our failure to live according to the oath. That's how we know that even as we await and anticipate the return of the king, that what God promises in Luke 12 will surely pass. He is faithful, faithful, faithful to his promises. So God, we come this morning. We come this morning. And as we rush through the season of Advent, celebrate not just your first coming but your return may we reflect deeply God may we reflect hopefully God and joyfully at this incredibly powerful truth that this baby will grow up walk upon the face of this earth will live a perfect life Display the attributes of the kingdom in his life and will die for the sins of not just the world but for my sins for my failure to live according to the covenant oath and God this morning as we celebrate communion this morning, God, as the bread is broken, what a powerful, tangible reminder to us of your body that was broken, that was cut to pieces, and your blood that was shed so that we might freely, by grace, enter your kingdom. Enter your kingdom and await the feast the feast that awaits us what amazing love what amazing grace so this morning as we take the bread and as we take the cup Will you remind us anew? Will you remind us afresh? What an unbelievable, amazing privilege it is that we have. 
and we'll just rush through it. But perhaps this morning we would pause and declare, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for walking the blood path.